everyone. Welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoy the review that you're about to hear. If you do, I do encourage you to click the subscribe button and you'll continue to get all of these films from the 1980s reviewed to you on a continuous basis. I try to do this weekly, so hopefully you're able to continue to keep up with that and enjoy the films along with me. I like to get some interactions too, so if you have any thoughts of your own on these films, definitely seek me out either on Twitter or Facebook or on my website. I definitely enjoy the discussion, especially from people who also love these movies as much as I do. Today we're going to finish off the last of this kind of makeshift trilogy of films in which a plant or vegetation is one of the main characters. And I forgot to mention what I was going to be reviewing for this week. I guess it was going to be a natural follow-up to Swamp Thing from 1982 on the previous episode. I'm returning here another film of the 80s, the follow-up. The Return of Swamp Thing from 1989. It's a horror comedy. Definitely very heavy on the comedy. It's a PG-13 rated film. It does have sensuality, some mild gore, violence, and some language. And the runtime is an hour and 28 minutes. Heather Locklear, Louis Jordan returning here, as well as Dick Duroc. Sarah Douglas, Joey Sagal, Ace Mask, Monique Gabrielle. Ronrico Lee and Daniel Emery Taylor are also in the film. The director is Jim Wynorski, and the screenplay is by Neil Cuthbert and Grant Morris. Heather Locklear is starring as Abigail, who's this horticulturalist who ends up traveling to see her stepfather, played by Louis Jordan, in order to get more information as to what happened to her deceased mother. Her remains disappeared under mysterious circumstances, and she feels that her stepfather has the key. That stepfather just so happens to be Dr. Arcane, who happened to have survived his ordeal against the Swamp Thing in the 1982 film for reasons that aren't really fully explained. Arcane doesn't mind inviting his stepdaughter into his home to investigate, even if he's employing some Dr. Moreau-like experiments to genetically merge human beings with a variety of species of animals. Because he has his own evil plans, he wants to use her in order to maintain his own life indefinitely. And we find out through the course of this film that it's because of her perfect genetics. He wants a piece of her in order to make himself live forever. However, the Swamp Thing, once again, played by Dick Durek, although his voice somehow is dubbed over by a voice actor who's uncredited. Neither Durek nor Winorski actually know who did it or why it was done in post-production. Swamp Thing takes an immediate role as her savior. Time and again, he battles local creeps and the occasional arcane experiment gone awry, terrorizing the habitat. This one is shot near Savannah, Georgia, unlike the last one, which was in South Carolina, although both are supposedly set in Louisiana. Eventually, all of this culminates in the scenario for another showdown between Arcane and Swamp Thing that will result in a battle for survival for Beauty, the Beast, and the Madman. Now, this one was released seven years after the low-budget Wes Craven original. The original had found some success on the home video market. The creators, including the perennial B-movie director, the trash movie director, Jim Wynorski, and the screenwriters, Neil Cuthbert and Grant Morris, they really go full bore into the campy tone that Wes Craven had only offered as the spice to flavor his own darker effort. There are in-jokes that abound. Locklear's inclusion results in a few throwaway lines about Motley Crue and T.J. Hooker, and Jordan talks to a parrot named Gigi, of course, in reference to probably his most famous of film roles. 
The film was completed in about a month. It was a very quick production, quick turnaround. There wasn't a lot of thought, I think, that went into the making of this film, although surprisingly for a B-movie effort, there is some money behind this one. I mean, the makeup certainly works better in this follow-up. Dick Durek is able to move much more rapidly and naturally while he's in the Swamp Thing getup, and he even exhibits a lot more personality underneath all of the green goop and some of the leafy adornments of his new costume. Cinematography here is crisper than the first time out. The costume work is definitely more assured. Good lighting, some other effects are much more robust here. There's even a more polished sheen to the film than Wes Craven was afforded in this first time around. There are a few nifty ideas thrown into the film, and some memorable ones. Swamp Thing ends up traveling through the water pipe system and then reassembling himself when he drains himself into a bathtub and recomposes himself while he's in Arcane's lair. I guess that's better than the toilet. There are kind of some ingenious ideas. If you set the bar low enough, you'll be surprised by some of what ends up getting put into this film from a, I guess, cleverness standpoint. Wynorski dabbled with other actresses, Tracy Lords, who appeared in Wynorski's prior film called Not of the Stirs, Tanya Roberts, who later would appear in one of Wynorski's films in 1993's Sins of Desire, they were considered for the role of Abby, but Heather Locklear would end up winning out. She provides the requisite eye candy for the film, and unfortunately, and maybe not necessarily undeservedly, she would receive a Razzie Award, the Golden Raspberry Award, for her role in the film, which is given to the worst performance of the year. Although, to be fair, this is not the kind of production that really necessitates good thespianship, and maybe it might actually benefit from a lack of it. The low point for the return of Swamp Thing, I believe, is the love scene that happens between Abby and the Swamp Thing, something that Locklear actually was quite against. He offers her a mind-altering piece of himself, like the bud of a flower, for her to ingest, and that transforms him, his image, to that of a regular hunky man, at least in her mind, and they sensually kiss and caress each other without really anything too explicit shown. This is a film that features a vegetable man, a vegetarian love interest, and yet it's chock full of such moments of ham and cheese. I think the big problem for the Swamp Thing franchise in film form is that it really comes at the heels of Alan Moore's highly acclaimed run in comics in the saga of the Swamp Thing, really redefined the character for a whole new set of fans. And, you know, it gained a following for this character who clearly were not going to dig this further digression into the inanity of a deliberately bad camp-filled movie along the lines of The Toxic Avenger, Still pretty fun to see over-the-top performances from Durek and Louis Jordan, who apparently came for the paycheck, and he really did not work well with Wynorski, Sagal, and Douglas. And by the way, Sarah Douglas will be known by fans of DC Comics adaptations because she played the evil Kryptonian named Ursa from 1980's Superman 2. There are two kids in the film, I guess that will kind of split some viewers as to how they'll react to them. They're played by Ron Rico Lee and Daniel Emery Taylor. For me, I actually found them pretty delightful. I, mean, I think Taylor, in particular, stole all of his scenes, primarily due to his endearingly bad acting alone. He's not a good actor in this film, but somehow it ends up working even better because of it. As with the first effort, there's some fun that can be had from the child acting. These couple of young boys who are looking for Swamp Thing in order to sell this picture of him for what they feel will earn them about $10,000. It's kind of a comic relief moment, even though the film is really playing up as a comedy for most of the film. If I had a wish, I wish we could have gotten a spinoff film featuring the continued adventures of these young actors portraying Daryl and Omar. They exude a, a certain juvenile charm reminiscent of a little rascal's short. 
I think Winarski ended up liking them as well. That's why they're featured so prominently throughout this movie. For as much as the makers of this film obviously felt that there would be an audience out there that enjoyed the Wes Craven original, that found new life on VHS, the audience really did not come out to see this follow-up in the theater. It pulled in less than $200,000 overall in its theatrical run at the U.S. box office. That was far below the reported $7 million production budget for the film. But despite all of its flaws, which are pretty substantial, there is still an energy to the production that makes The Return of Swamp Thing easy to watch, particularly for those viewers who enjoy films made for bad action flick lovers. You know, this film kicks off with Creedence Clearwater Revival's Born on the Bio over this credit sequence that plays out over a lot of images that are taken from the DC Comics Swamp Thing panels. Even though Wynorski's film strays far, far away from the tone of the comics that are represented within the pages that are splashed over the title sequence, it still kicks off this film with good energy, and for a long time, the film manages to kind of keep its head above water before it ultimately starts to get pretty redundant and a little bit ugly, and unfortunately begins to overstay its welcome, even though it doesn't even reach 90 minutes in length. Nevertheless, guilty pleasures abound. But one thing's for certain about the competing things, if you recall last week, I described how I used to, back in the days, get Swamp Thing and Man Thing, even though one's made by DC and one's made by Marvel, completely mixed up. The two Swamp Thing movies, as flawed as they are, still run circles around that god-awful 2006 film based on Marvel's similarly premised Man Thing. At least this one is good for an occasional chuckle, both intentional and not. So it's a bad movie, but a so good it's bad movie, and one I can't quite recommend in a general sense, but I think it definitely has an audience. In fact, I discussed how Cisco and Ebert gave the original Swamp Thing from 1982 two thumbs up. This one didn't quite have the benefit of getting two thumbs up, but Roger Ebert still recommended it for achieving what it set out to do. So take that for what it's worth for those fans of this as for me, I'm going to give this film two stars out of four, but I will say of the films that I rate as two-star movies, this is one I enjoy much more than that. I just can't quite say it's a good enough film or even a close call because this obviously is not really close to being a good movie, but it is an enjoyable one for what it's worth for its badness. So two stars out of four is what I'm giving, The Return of Swamp Thing. By the way, after this film, just the next year, Dick Derrick would continue playing Swamp Thing, albeit in a less campy version, on television for the USA Network. And that would run about three seasons. I think it went from 1990 to 1993. And for those people who are big Swamp Thing fans, I'm, I guess I'm happy to report that they are planning to produce a Swamp Thing television show once again to be released in 2019. So hopefully if that doesn't completely fall through, you'll get more Swamp Thing which reportedly is going to take it into a far less campy direction. And one more thing I want to mention before I go here, there's an extra scene that features Daryl and Omar a short way into the end credits, so don't immediately turn the film off as soon as you see the end credits. Just stick around for a minute or so, and you'll catch that extra scene. As far as what I'm going to be reviewing next week, I'm going to continue on with the DC Comics vibe. I'm going to continue on with a film that was actually released one month after The Return of Swamp Thing in 1989. And I'm talking about another film that was actually coincidentally produced by somebody who's credited as a producer in this film. I'm talking about Tim Burton's 1989 big mega blockbuster, Batman. Yes, Batman will be the film I'll be reviewing next week. So I hope you'll tune in then. I have a lot to say about that film. And I'm looking forward to bringing all of that to you 
in a week's time. Thanks everyone for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this review. I do want to mention that I also do another podcast covering films that are brand new out in theaters called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. Do a search for it wherever you're listening to this right now and you'll find it. And Quipster is spelled with a W. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R. And until next time, thanks everyone for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. Thank you.